I'm Jasmine Moradi, and you are listening to the Power of Audio, Science and AI. My guest today is my new friend, Joel Dweck. We were introduced to each other through a common friend, Kevin Perlmutter. They got to know each other at Manmade Music, the top US Sonic branding studio where Joel is the creative director and chief scientist. Born in London, England, now living in Los Angeles, Joel draws heavily on his background in music and neuroscience to guide and innovate the use of sound to bring meaning, realism and emotions in audiovisual. His talent has made him an award-winning composer, sound designer, and instrumentalist whose music has underscored many films, television productions, and documentaries. Millions recognize his music, which has brought many scenes to life, features such as the BAFTA-winning film Flying Monsters 3D, The Everest Adventure, The Wildest Dream, and dark thrillers such as Manhattan Night and The Tall Man. Joel is also the co-founder of Echo VR, bringing many VR and AR experiences to life through the power of music. Plus, he sits on the board of directors of the Society of Composers and Lyricists, making sure that artists and musicians are fairly paid. In this episode, Joel and I are going to discuss the ins and outs of music and emotion, the perspective and magical ability of a composer to subconsciously bringing a scene to life through music. With that, Joel, I welcome you and thank you so much for joining us. I'm so excited. Likewise, likewise. I'm, I'm excited to, uh, you know, share this often kind of forgotten world of, of music because uh, we, you know, as you know, we kind of operate a little bit behind the scenes, but um, but we like to think that what we do is important, and I, I, th I honestly do think it is. So um, it's very nice to be here. I'm so happy to hear too. So tell us, how are you feeling? And please express your emotion with a piece of music or a song title. Well, I mean, I think like for most people, it's been it's been quite uh, a roller coaster. Um, uh, I found myself I was high risk, and so. I had to pretty much extreme quarantine for the entire year and I only, only left the house a handful of times. And um, I'm an introvert, so I assumed that that would be easy. But when it came down to it, it wasn't so easy. And uh, and seven of those weeks, I, I had to stay completely alone because uh, my wife's sister had COVID and she had to go to New Jersey. And so uh, that was probably the worst experience of my life not something I ever want to repeat. So now I've been vaccinated both times and I'm back out in the world. Um, and the change is quite dramatic and quite emotional. Uh, I feel kind of a little torn because on the one hand, um, I feel like I must never forget how bad this was for me and for everybody else. But at the same time, another part of me needs to move forward and not dwell on you know the the, the stress of it um I, i've been borrowing a a phrase from one of the episodes of star trek discovery i think it was season three where they invoke the idea of post-traumatic growth and i thought about that and i literally paused watching and wrote it down and thought i like this this is good because at the same time as we could you know um, unpack or deconstruct the last year in terms of the terrible things that we've seen, been exposed to, or, or lived ourselves. I think at the same time there were we were forced to grow in different ways, ways that we didn't necessarily expect. We were we were forced to rise to challenges that even if we weren't ready for, we had to do. Um, we were forced to. Uh, see each other as an interconnected society and as an interconnected world. And many of those tests as a global community, we failed, particularly in America. So rather than fixate on the negatives, the idea of post-traumatic growth and what that means for me on an individual level, um, and, and I think it's a good one to play with. And for me, I can tell you that it's, it's I guess it's, 
not too surprising, but you've, I feel like um, I'm not going to take things for granted anymore, including my health and my freedom to move around and travel, and that I want to make every minute of my life count. And um, that in times of crisis, you see who people really are, and that now is the time to align yourself with the people that you feel you know, you're able to connect with and, and make those friendships deeper. And from some of them move away, and that's hard. So um, I have been fortunate that, you know, I have been fairly busy with work. I scored a movie in the early part of the pandemic up until about July. And then after that, had quite a lot of VR work to do um, and, and different projects. So I've been pretty busy. I'm also a sculptor, so uh, I've been doing some of that, so that kind of uh, uh, more abstract manual work uh, was also quite freeing. If I describe how I feel from the outside, or like people looking in, it would probably be this. Birds flying high, you know how I feel. Sun in the sky, you know how I feel. Breeze drifting on by, you know how I feel. It's a new dawn, it's a new day. It's a new life for me, yeah. It's a new dawn, it's a new day. It's a new life for me. You know, and, and I actually uh, played that on the first day I was out, me and my wife, you know, after the two weeks post second vaccine, we drove to Malibu to eat fish and chips and sit on the beach, take our shoes off, put our feet in the water, which is pretty cold, too cold to swim for me, and put some, you know, water on our heads, almost as a, a mikvah or a baptism to mm. say, all right, from now we start anew, it's a new dawn, it's a new day, it's a new life. And so I still play that quite often, you know, to remind myself because I really do, I really do kind of resonate with, with those words. Um, probably on an internal level, I'm feeling more like this, which is a piece I wrote called underwater life so maybe part of me is still underwater but i guess on an emotional level uh this piece that i wrote is probably Make me. <laughs> yeah. So, 
I, I, I chose that. Um, <laughs> that comes from uh, uh, Galapagos and Nature's Wonderland with David Attenborough, which we did as an IMAX movie. And that was the scene for um, Underwater. And I think emotionally what, what the scenes demanded, but also what it says to me now, is this kind of flow um, and complexity of emotions and ebbing between a sense of melancholy and loss and a sense of emergence and positivity and then coming back around to a dark place. You know, and I think all of that can happen inside my head in the space of a few seconds and then go back again. Mm -hmm. So so I think that's uh, that's probably a, a good interpretation musically of of where I'm at. But um so, so uh, beautiful. And I must say, I'm sorry to hear that you had it, that difficulty, but you have this ability to, to bring that in music and share it with the world. And then I would like to know, like, what is your earliest memory of music as a child? And when did you know that you had this music talent? I, I mean, I think music was always in my household. I, I I don't have a specific memory. I can actually remember back to when I was very young. I have one of those weird dyslexic memories of, you know, I can remember things from when I was two or three years old. But I, I remember, you know, my parents were not musical, but they were avid music listeners. Uh, neither of them had had the opportunity to study an instrument. Um, but I remember for my about probably sixth or seventh birthday, I had an older cousin who was super cool. Um, and he gave me a double album of the, the greats of jazz. And that was my very first record that I owned. And I was extremely proud of it and precious about it. And I really cherished it. And it actually began my love, not only of jazz, uh, but because jazz is a highly complex music, it allowed me a window into, um, I think, fairly evolved forms of music, even at a young age. So throughout my life, since then, I've listened intensely to jazz and, you know, music from all over the world, Latin America in particular, and Africa. I ran an African drumming society for a while and classical music, um, which has always been a big, big part of my life. So I studied piano. And while I loved playing piano, you know, I started when I was six, being, as I later found out in life, being dyslexic meant that I always struggled with music notation and reading. So um, I only ever used my ear. So the teacher would play something and I would be able to copy him because I heard it. Um, but he wouldn't, he didn't like that. I mean, he wanted me to be able to play it from the page. Um, so that was, frust it was frustrating. Yeah. Um, it was kind of always a cumbersome experience. And so in the end, I just, I really didn't like my piano lessons anymore. Uh, and I feel I didn't, I felt at the time I didn't have any talent because that's basically what my piano teacher was kind of telling me is that I'm doing it the wrong way. Um, and, you know, I still joke to this day that the reason I became a music composer is that I can't read anyone else's music. So if I'm going to play, I have to play my own stuff. But then um, a very sh short time after I started piano, um, I was encouraged to, to pick up an orchestral instrument so I could have that experience in an orchestra. And I chose to play percussion. Um, and there my teachers really pushed me up and made me feel great about playing. And they told me, you know, you have for your age and height, you have a lot of talent. And, and they would make me play the cymbals, you know, and I couldn't even lift them. They were so heavy. So they would pick them up and put them in my hands. And then I would just do my thing, you know, count the bars and do it again. Um, so, I mean, I would argue even to this day whether I have any particular talent, but I've definitely worked hard at it. I think if I do have a talent, it's probably more in the rhythmic area. Uh, I think I can confidently say, you know, I'm a good professional bongo player and uh, a pretty good drummer. I can hold my own on the piano and guitar. I can get done what I need to do, but ultimately the real talent one needs as a composer is in writing. Mm. And I think the primary thing, and we'll talk about this, but the primary thing that we need as a composer to be able to write is taste. Mm. As any artist, it's taste. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. Well, well, I'll tell you one thing. I'll tell you, you have a talent. Why? Because Thank I you. wish I could master an instrument and I did try it as a child. I tried the flute and then I always loved the piano and, and, you know, even got my mom to buy one. But soon I realized I really didn't have that talent. I, I would be like, you know, I have some kind of dyslexia, but it wasn't challenging of reading it. It's just that I couldn't just read notes and get it out of music. I could only play what I recognized. And yes. after that, I've kept joking with my friends and I would say that I could cut off my left hand if I was given the chance to sing like a Celine Dion. You on the other hand, what I listen to it and the talent I hear, you know, you're born with a soul of music. And going then back to when did you produce your first song and what is all like normally the inspiration behind your music? Well, firstly, I, I, I would I would take issue with what you said. I think if you, if you, if you stuck with it, you because it, what it sounds like is you had the right passion and that's really, that's your driving force. If you enjoy yeah. it, that's really all you need. And, um, and, and, but whether, whether or not you have talent, I guess when you're starting out is irrelevant because you still have to go through the process of converting something that's visual or, or audible into a, um, you know, hand, eye response mm -hmm. and that is a complex process that takes time and immense practice and i think the only way you can do that really is if you're um you know is if you're uh passionate about it and you really enjoy it so you know with my piano teacher while eventually i kind of stopped doing piano lessons i carried on playing piano for myself mm -hmm. every day and working things out, figuring things out, putting it on a record and then working it out. My brother bought me a book of, uh, there's a David Bowie songbook. And I was really into David Bowie at the time. And so I just learned tunes from there. And then, you know, I ended up as kind of the kid that would play the piano and we'd all stand around and sing and stuff like that. Um, I, I, so I played really all throughout my life. Um, I think I only started writing music when I was around 18 uh left home i was actually at medical school at that point and we had this super cool new apple computer and a sampling system and it was very kind of nerdy and and i am a very nerdy composer i like the technological aspect of it very much um, rather than pencil and paper and all of that i'm all about you know what can we do with the you know the the electronic aspect of it to make it flow to make it easier uh and to take it into newer places um but still it was just kind of like a hobby and i started in earnest really in my mid-20s i was working then for the united nations and one of my jobs i was a, a desk officer for technological disasters chernobyl and things like that and one of my jobs was to um create little advocacy um psas or short documentaries and typically the UN would use library music. So I asked if I could write the music and they said, knock yourself out. We don't have any budget, but if it's your show, if you want to write the music. You... So I did. And that's where I discovered kind of my love of writing for picture more than being on stage, more than writing songs. I realized this is something I was better at, particularly documentary. And it gave me the latitude to bring in my love of world music and all the instruments you know that, that I was learning to play and it was also an opening back into the incredibly diverse emotional palette that the orchestra brings and so that's where it kind of began and and it wasn't too long after that that I quit my job at the UN and kind of not knowing what I wanted to do, just kind of went into music because it's the only other thing I knew how to do. Uh, it was never planned. I never planned to be a composer. And I read your fascinating article, Music and Emotion, A Composer's Perspective, published in Frontiers in Neuroscience. So let us then talk about, you've talking about your story, me and my, mine. Let's talk about that every moment in our lives is consciously highlighted the music from birth to death and the importance of it. Yeah, I mean, it's something that for better or for worse, we are generally unconscious of. We just do it. But when you if you were um, kind of lurking 
on someone's life and looking in? A majority of people, you'd find that they might play some music when they wake up and get motivated. Maybe they'll play some music when they're in the shower and getting dressed. And then on their trip to work, maybe they'll have their iP uh, AirPods in or something like that and they'll be listening to music. And then while they're on the bus or something like that, an ambulance will go by. And that's music of a form, right? It's a sound, it's a, it's a musical tone that it's informational. It indicates something, but it is still music. And then you go past a, a church or a mosque and you hear the bells ringing or a call to prayer. And that's music too. And then at work, you might have some music on in the background, depending on what kind of work you do. Or you might go shopping in the pharmacy and there's some music on in the background as well. And then, you know, all of those things. And then you go back home and maybe you relax to some music or maybe you watch some TV or a movie and there is music underscoring that too. So there are very few moments of our lives that are kind of exempt of music. And, you know, why is that? And, you know, I don't think there's any kind of short answer to that. But from that, we can definitely say that we are musical beings. We are musical beings fundamentally. And there's very interesting research that suggests that early human, early Homo sapiens sapiens language was musical in nature, in the sense that language, spoken language as we use today, and music come from a common ancestor evolutionarily. And one of the proofs of this, if you like, we don't really use proofs very much in science, but one of the, you know, uh, suggestions that this might be true is, for example, when you listen to what they call motherese, which is the way um, nursing mothers talk to their infant children, infant babies, where they tend to use a lot of intonation. It's very musical. It's like, hello, little baby. Would you like a little bit more food? Oh, no, 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 no. And then in the way that we talk as adults, we explore musical intonation in a very specific way. So, for example, if I say, hey, Jazz, I'm really excited to see you. I'm going up a major third, which is an indication of a happiness. Um, if I say, yeah, it's a bit cloudy outside. I'm going actually down a minor third, approximately, right? And that is an indication of something that's a little minor, a little more sad, a little more negative, all right? So we are using intonation. Also, other languages, we know that they use intonation a lot, um, Chinese, uh, Thai, Vietnamese, but also some of the very ancient languages like Quechua. You know, I've spent a fair amount of time in the Amazon jungle for a variety of reasons, mostly for work but interfacing with uh, with various tribes and listening to them talk they are very musical it almost sounds like they're whining um and and i see that as kind of like a, a vestige these are languages that are not even written they're just passed down but i see it as kind of vestige of this um primordial common ancestor and from that comes the whole world of linguistics and and all of the a complex artic articulation of words and meanings, but also this incredible world of music, of subconscious experience of emotion. And it's who we are as humans. You also mentioned in your article that it's challenging as a composer to respond to the question, how do you create music? And that you attempt to work backwards when producing music. So explain this process for us when you work backwards in space to connect with the audience as a deeper level. So that's a process that I found over time. Um, I found that if I just kind of sat at the piano or keyboard and try to write a killer melody, that it just didn't come out that way. That, um, and I would struggle with that and I would really beat myself up about it. And uh, a lot of the time, <clears throat> you know, when you're doing some kind of like a TV sports network melody or something like that, that is what is needed. It's, it's a kind of four note motif or something like that. And I, I've always struggled with that because it doesn't come with any background or any sense or any context. So I find that I need to create the context first. And that context in film and television is 
an emotional one. It's like, what emotion do we want people to feel right now? And then where does it go now? And then where does it go now? And the way to articulate emotion in music, um, you know, in a very solid and obvious way is through the use of harmony. So the chords that you pick uh, very quickly communicate a happiness or a sadness or a melancholy or an apprehension or an anticipation, excitement or a fear, a horror. All of these, they're very accessible to a composer to put in as the foundation of whatever is going to come next. So I always start with the the harmonic structure and I work with that for a while. And then what usually happens is it's almost like a puzzle that I put in extra pieces. And then what happens is I start to hear a melody implied, a melody that is not yet there, but needs to be there. And so then I write that melody in and and that works for me because it has a context now. It's set. It has a harmonic sense. It has an emotional arc by virtue of what's under, underpinning it. And so that's my experience of it. And so, you know, I, I'm kind of borrowing this phrase from um, um, Lindsay Buckingham of uh, Fleetwood Mac. He gave a talk at one time and he described his process very much like that. And I was sitting in the audience thinking, oh, thank God I'm not the only one, you know, who writes like that. Um, and he called it coming in through the through the back door, you know, mm-hmm. um, and and that's what works for me. And so. But you also I, mentioned that there's a difference between writing music for film than writing songs and concert music. Why? Yes. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, when you're writing songs or concert music, I think the assumption is that you can write anything you want. Right. That there's no holes barred. Um, you can write in any style and instrumentation. You can make it as long as you want. Um, you can go anywhere you want. There are no confines and there are no set parameters. And so I like to think of that as kind of composing laterally. You can spread out in any way you want. When you're composing for film or television, firstly, you're composing to serve the vision of the film or the TV show. You are not doing this for yourself. You have to subjugate your ego to the vision of the director, usually. And I always tell young composers, and if you're not comfortable with that, then you're in the wrong business. Go off and write a song. Go and be lateral. So then in film and TV composing, you're basically given extremely stringent parameters. It's almost like having a wall here and a wall here that says you have to write this music. It has to be 35 seconds long, exactly to the frame. You can only use these instruments and it has to express as best as possible this set of emotions. And so, you know, when I kind of discuss it with songwriters, they go, excuse my language, fuck that. Uh, You know, I couldn't do that. And for me, I couldn't, you know, if you don't give me something, something to work with. So I express film and TV composing as composing vertically because you've got these constraints. So instead you find the artistic and creative fulfillment and exploration through a kind of vertical movement of like, Uh, tight parameters, uh, lack of choices is actually very, very fruitful. It's very inspiring to have limits. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, I'll give you a, a parallel example in retail. Okay, um, one of I think a, a study was done about people's purchasing habits in pharmacies, and they would go in to buy a, a let's say a cold and flu medicine. And at one point in time, maybe let's say 30 years ago, uh, let's say um, Medicine X, there it was, cold and flu, you would buy it. Now you go in and you have you have this for cold and flu and sore throat. This one is cold and flu and runny nose and this one. And so products have diversified. All of them have diversified so much. This is Advil. This is Advil PM. This is Aleve. This is, you know, that... A person goes in there and they don't know what's best. And there's a this is where I got it from. There was a really good TED talk on this. And the and what happens to that person is they become unhappy because even with what they buy, they never feel confident that they made the right choice. They walk out of the pharmacy thinking, maybe I should have got this cherry flavored NyQuil instead because it has this in it or something. And so 
It breeds unhappiness and insecurity. So choices aren't always the right direction for people. And by owning that and saying, let's diminish the choices. And as a creative, that sounds like a, a really horrible thing to do to a creative person. You know, you hear songwriters saying all the time, like, you know, the record company was uh, meddling in what I wanted to do too much. And, and I don't want to compromise my integrity and stuff. As film composers, the question of integrity doesn't come into it hmm. because we're serving a different function. Um, and but you can still add some of your creativity, or you can oh yeah, like, absolutely. And I think say, that's, oh, when I start exactly. doing this, I felt this, and that's why I added it because it's it's a it's a process. It's like writing, right? So yeah. somebody can give you a scope, but while you do it, you can you can figure out magical thing. But can anybody learn? to write me like become a music writer um it's a it's um that's a complicated question um i mean you read my article um and in order to write that article i interviewed every composer that i knew well and i asked them that question can composing be taught and i think the answer is it can be faked well enough for people to do actually pretty well. But we, and I'm saying as maybe the community of professional composers, don't believe, just to put it off myself, don't believe that it can be learned. Uh, we think it's an innate skill. It's not special. Other people have other innate skills. You know, when you marvel at sports personalities and athletes, what they can do, those are innate skills that, you know, you just can't learn. Interesting and, that and you so, say that I can learn the piano, but I can't write the <laughs> taught how to write music. And I feel like I can't do either of them because it's such a specific, uh, I do believe well, it's the soul somehow, even if well, we can do it somehow, but not professionally and well, yes. like some people. Right. And I think, you know, it's also I guess it's a spectrum as well. It's like mm -hmm. I'm not at the extreme of the spectrum, you know, like the John Williamses and stuff like and the Mozarts and, and people who really, frankly, only pop up once a generation mm -hmm. or once a century. So that that is something that, that is extremely unique. Um, but I think there are some core things that make a make for a good film and television composer. Mm -hmm. You need to have a good capacity for empathy because we need to be able to read people and read characters and read between the lines so we need to be psychologists because not only do we want to feel what they're feeling we want to be able to understand and deconstruct what that is because sometimes it's very nuanced and complex mm -hmm. you need a high degree of vulnerability and sensitivity which makes actually life as a composer very, very difficult. Because on the one hand, you're writing music that's going to get thrown back at you. And on the other hand, you are by nature extremely vulnerable. And you're, walking, you're walking like with your emotions. Yes, yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you wear them on your sleeve. Yeah, I say the same when I work with, uh, you know, consumer insights and, and, and with research. I have to do that to be able to understand things around me. And it, it's hard to. when people it's say hard. you're too it's emotional uh, and you sometimes don't want to feel things or see things, but is it part of your skill, right? It is, absolutely. Um, you know, I often say I, I wouldn't wish it on anybody, <laughs> but I wouldn't have it any other way for myself. Oh, we are so the same. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have it any other way. I mean, I wouldn't want to lose my sensitivity and vulnerability, even if life impinges on me impacts me in a very you know uh intense way in every waking minute you know and i'm an insomniac as well ideas and things and you know so i'm always in a precarious area but again it's it's uh i i think that's the creative that's part of the creative life that you choose and and Taking criticism is something that you can learn over time to deal with and get better at. 
And what I have learned over time is, you know, very often you write a piece of music and the director will say, well, could you do this differently? And can you change this? And can you change that? And one's initial reaction is a kind of like you, you, you put up boundaries and you put up armor and you're like, no, it's fine just the way it is. And then you go away and you start plugging in their, their suggestions. And even if it's just by virtue of the fact that you spent more time on the piece, nine times out of 10, it becomes better. It becomes better because it becomes greater than the sum of the parts. It's not then just what you've done. It's what you and the director have done together. And this continues in the process of the music writing. And it continues then when you bring in the orchestrator who then takes it to another level and says, wouldn't it be better if we put that in the cello rather than the viola? It'll just sound better and more space. And then you give it to a live orchestra composed of people who have devoted individually their entire lives to perfecting that particular instrument. You give the music to them and then another 65 or so people take what was a seed that you started and turn it into something that is greater even more than the sum of those 65, 70, 80 parts. And then you don't own it anymore. You know, it's not you, it's theirs. It's everybody's, it's out there. And, And that is a very fulfilling experience and then once you've had that experience it's easier then to accept criticism and say okay you know what i've had enough goes where nine out of ten times it did improve that one out of ten time and this is always hard as a composer where you really really feel it's worth picking your battle on this one and you have to do it and you have to articulate it and stuff like that then you should you know if believe in yourself and and say no i know this is right I know this is right and do your best to convince the director, but never be obstructive. Again, it's not about you. It's about them and about their movie. And you keep that in mind and then, and, and, you know, you'll wrestle with your own vulnerabilities in your own private time, punch some, punch some pillows and throw things around the room if you like. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so let us get into the composing of movies then. Uh, I remember watching the history of Walt Disney documentary when Walt was on the edge of bankruptcy, but still kept yeah. working towards producing animations better than his competitors. His success came when he became the first in the world and the first in his era to add music to the Mickey Mouse cartoons theme about Willy. And because yeah. of Walt Disney's technology innovation back then, it made Disney to what Disney is today. So from your lens, teach us about the history of sound and music in films. Well, I think, um, you know, we bandy about the term silent film, silent movies, but there really never was a silent movie. There was always an accompanist, Mm. even very early on. I I don't know if you know the origin of film, but it was to it was actually to, to answer a bet between two people. I think they were both magicians about whether at any point in time of a horse's gallop, all four hooves were off the ground. And they, they realized that the only way they could, they could test this was to take a succession of photographs and, and then be able to look at it. And I think the answer was, yes, there is a point in time when all four hooves are off the ground, the horse is flying. And inadvertently, they created film. They created movie, they created the moving image. So I love the fact, firstly, that that comes from, you know, just a bet, right? Yeah. yeah. And has created this entire world of creativity that we are deeply immersed in now, more than ever in the history of the world. But even in those early days, there was a, a pianist or something. Da, 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 yeah, da. the silence was just based on like the actor was not speaking. Exactly. But, but the but music the... was telling the story and the way they were yes. gesturing. Which, yeah. which is what music still does. You know, it tells the emotional story. You know, the actors, now that they talk, it tells you what they're thinking. The music tells you what they're feeling. And the audience needs to know who is the baddie and who is the protagonist, who's the hero. And it's the music that tells you that. You know, we we know that Darth Vader is coming around the corner because we hear his theme in advance. Dun, 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 dun. So... Well, you call that sound before picture, right? Like I would say that... You always always know that a couple is going to, you know, kiss or make up depending on the music because it already starts telling the story. Yeah, the human brain accepts sound before picture. Even, you know, you can introduce the ambient sounds or even dialogue from the scene that's to come. 
and the brain can make sense of it, but not so the other way around. You can't have picture before sound, like picture with nobody talking and then sound kind of catches up with it. But um, at some point in the history of film, they moved into, okay, well, we need music. So let's put it in the visual image, which is what we call diegetic music. So you have a pretext for music to be there. So you'll have, you know, a jazz band or somebody singing in the actual movie and they film it as part of it. And then at some point, you know, a combination of Walt Disney's uh, decision to include music because because it needed to be there. And I think it was one of the Metro Goldwyn mayors, I think it was Goldwyn, who basically said, put music in. And people argued and said, yes, but there's no justification to have music in because there are no players on the screen. And apparently he said something like, I don't care, do it anyway. <laughs> and instead, what happened is that then music became non-diegetic. It was not uh, part of what was part of the scene. It was instead part of our emotional journey. And it ser began to serve the purpose that it still serves today, which is subconsciously informing and guiding us on the emotional journey of what we're watching. And that was a bold move that paid off in a huge way. And that's where we are now. And, and but still then, if, if it's been magical, it's been there since start by then, how come it's still then not valued and neglected? You know, as you know, I have a background in neuroscience. So I think this is a, a, it's the way our brains are wired. Mm. Visual things tend to impinge more on our conscious brain, our frontal lobe, right? Music and sound, like smell, are senses that are wired to quite ancient parts of our brain. Um, our emotional brain, our reflexive brain, all of those areas are subconscious. And it's wired that way because sound has always been, not just ours, but throughout the animal kingdom, our primary 360 survival sense. Yes. So you could... For example, a herd of wildebeest coming in your direction. By the time you see them, it's too late. But you can hear them and you can feel them. And haptics, you know, the vibration is the origin of hearing. The vibration is now translated inside our eardrum, but it's still a vibration, right? So whether you're looking at it or not, the potential danger or the potential food that you're hunting, you can detect it without even turning your head. And so it's vitally important um, as a as a brain function. It's what has arguably allowed us to stay alive. It's not maybe what makes us human. It's not capacity for abstraction and stuff, but it's reflexive and it's emotional and it's fast, super fast. And but it's unconscious. And so because it's unconscious, I actually tell other sound people and music people it's just it's something that we have to make our peace with we're never going to make it conscious you know we're not going to actually physically rewire the brain but what we can do and should do is articulate this idea well or a music and sound idea well enough to our clients be advocates be proponents of it so they get it show them how much music changes the perception of what we're experiencing, what we're looking at, be it a movie like, uh, you know, that scary Mary where they took Mary Poppins, a scene for Mary Poppins and instead put uh, um, some horror music underneath. And instantly Mary Poppins seems like the most cruel and evil uh, witch. And then the contrast of that, my other favorite was a, uh, uh, a, a section from The Shining, the Kubrick mm, film, that, yeah. Nicholson, which they just called Shining. And they have this lovely family music underneath. And it seems like a happy family going on a vacation. And all of that is contained in the music. Um, you know, so by articulating that kind of importance and, and being a representative for the power of music and explaining, okay, we understand it's subconscious. So you're not it's not front of mind, so you're not budgeting for it and you're not giving enough time for it and you're not giving its place on the pedestal that it should be alongside visuals. But as directors, 
um, grow themselves and evolve as directors, m most of them start to understand very quickly the importance of music. You know, I've, I've done films with first time directors where, you know, I think it was Francis Ford Coppola once said that the director is the last true role of tyranny in the world. You know, you're able to be a total tyrant, total control over what everything that happens in the making of your film and the editing of your film. And then they hand it to the composer and they realize, oh, shit, I don't have control over this. The music that's going to underscore this can take the perception of my film and the characters in it from here to here or any anywhere in between. And you can see them sweating. It's like, yeah. I hope I pick the right composer and oh, my God. And. <laughs> So, you know, so then so imagine then that I'm a film producer. I'm coming to you looking for my, you know, for music for my latest uh, science movie. So yeah. how, when normally in the process, do you get involved? It varies. In an ideal world, we get involved very early on. That's uh, which, which is not yeah, often, which, right? Yeah, which means, but it's rare in film and TV. Um, uh, because you want to, it's not that you want to have a say, it's that, music and sound can solve problems directorial problems like how do we bridge this you know transition in a really seamless way that works um how do we reinforce the emotion that the director wants to drive in this particular section so if we're able to come in even at the at the point of the script before even pre-production um that is sometimes wonderful i mean one film i worked on uh, once I read the script, I started writing melodies and came up with some ideas and I kept them. It took 10 years before the film was actually made wow. in order to raise the money and, you know, the good actors to do it. And this was Manhattan Night with Adrian Brody and Yvonne Strahovski. But in that time, I'd had, I'd had the luxury of working with these melodic ideas. And so by the time they were about to start editing the film, I'd already written and delivered a whole bunch of what I thought were scratch tracks, you know, drafts, straight over to the director and the editor. And they were already using them in the film, in the rough cuts of the film, as opposed to the, and so it was perfect, it was great. I mean, we were 50% along with music while the edit was happening, I was tracking them, you know, and, it, and that accelerated the process. It meant it was just so, you know, we got away from having to use temp tracks, which is the other end of the spectrum where a director has almost no contact with a composer uh, throughout the entire filmmaking process. And then they score it with temporary tracks that they, you know, take from different movies and stuff like that, that they become really attached to, something that we call temp love. And then it comes over to the composer late in the day because they always finish the edit later and later because they keep making another revision but the deadline stays the same so you know they're buying into your time they're buying into your budget and and they're you know insanely attached often to the music that is there and they just say i want something like that mm -hmm. and i have these kind of peculiar conversations at that point usually that go something like this so i asked the director so your script uh, is that an original script? I mean, did you write it or, or did you copy it? And they go, no, 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 it's original. I wrote it from scratch. Absolutely. So I say, okay, so why would you want me to copy someone else's music rather than have an original custom score written for your original script? And usually then I can get them thinking about it and go, ah, oh, okay, I see your point. Okay, so give me a little bit of room. Give me a little bit of flexibility to do what I want to do. And um, so there's a lot of push and pull. But where you can get involved early in the process, it's better because so much of it is about, again, the empathy and the psychology, not just with the characters in the film, but with the director and the editor of understanding what they want, what they want to say, how they're saying it, what are the emotions they're feeling. And you ask them a lot of questions that are based around like adjectives describe is it melancholy is it this is it that tell me as many adjectives as you can for the scene tell me whose perspective are we experiencing this from that informs the musical approach a lot those kinds of questions and um so it's a very intensely collaborative process usually 
Would, would it uh -huh. be another process that that you would be interested to trying? I mean, I've heard. I haven't actually seen uh, seen the 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 back scenes of it, but I've heard that Joker was made. Uh, the music was made either during the filming or was it before? And then the actors were able to listen it to 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 feel those emotions. Uh, is is that yes. true, or can it be done, or what? How other ways can it then be done? No, absolutely. I mean, I, Hilda. Yeah. Uh, who scored that movie is a cellist herself. And at least uh, that particular scene, which was uh, him facing the mirror and himself in the bathroom, um, that was kind of like a, a musical montage scene. Um, she had written that piece. And I think seeing the scene evolve, that she would customize it a bit more and then they would play it. And on the scene he he made him go into this kind of slightly bizarre dance gestural dance that came really as a direct result of hearing the music so it absolutely can work that way and um and there are situations where you know if you're if you have that luxury of and time to write the music up front then often they will play it on a scene particularly when there's no dialogue and the actors can feel their way into that accordingly and maybe act better. Now, Avatar was a film that took four, four years to make and James Horner had four years to write the music. And that is a, a marvelous thing, if you think about it, the, the, the level of care and attention that you can bring to something when you have four years to work on it and in the constant backwards and forwards, mm. you know, between director and, and animators and graphics and composer and everything kind of comes together. Well, the music is like the script it tells the story so instead of saying here you should cry play yes. the music to get him into that you know state yes. of mind and state of emotion so let's now get into your other expertise which you talked a little bit earlier about neuroscience so both in you and i know that subconscious response provides a more accurate response than a conscious response when it comes to music and sound research so let us discuss them why is it so important that brands understand that they now have to start investing time and money in measuring consumers' subconscious mind? And can this be, plus what you said before, try to show the clients of, okay, a, a, like A-B testing, this is how it looks like. And then on top of that, how important I believe it is to also show the consumer's uh, emotional response to it. I mean, I think advertisers, brands, what they are always looking for is a shortcut or like an open pathway into people's emotions. And yet they've missed, you know, to some extent that music and sound is exactly that. It is the direct pathway into the human emotion. And I, I think consumers are much more savvy than they were in the past. You know, you can't lie to them like they used to. You can't prey on their insecurities like they used to. They can spot it, they, they need honesty, they can tell your intent much, much better. They can read it. And I think this is true both consciously and unconsciously. They know kind of more what's going on. So you have to approach it differently now. And emotion, is connected to reflex it leads to reflex a reflex is a it's a deep and lasting impact something that you will then be able to pull up in an instant again faster than the conscious mind can do it sound is the fastest sense of all five in terms of perception and because you're using the emotional pathway the consumer the individual becomes personally much more invested in the product they're feeling the product they're not just seeing a visual logo, they're feeling it. They're feeling what it means. And so through sound and music, we can tap into that reflexive and primal response and do it honestly, because this is a powerful tool, very powerful, not to be misused. Um, and when I say primal, that doesn't mean primitive. On the contrary, it's highly sophisticated. It's wired for as we were saying before, for surviving and for thriving. You know, if, if I throw you a ball 
Um, you cannot catch it with your conscious mind. Your conscious mind is like, oh, she's thrown a ball. Uh, he's thrown a ball. It's coming over here. It's coming. It's probably going to be up there. I'll raise my hand. Can't do it. It has to be a reflex. Boom. And only our subconscious brain can do that. And so if I was running a brand, I would, I would take that on board 1000% and realize that what I want to do is create a lasting impression. I want to create meaning. And I want to do it in a way that a person doesn't have to turn around, doesn't have to have a billboard or a television stuck right in front of their eyes in order to know which brand it is. And through sound, I can be in the kitchen cooking, but I hear that, you know, that brand's Sonic logo and I know who they are and I feel warm and fuzzy or I feel whatever, but I feel, I know, I know who it is. You know, so I think it's it's been overlooked, for certainly. Um, but I think it's time has come for a variety of reasons that people are more attuned to the power of sound now. We're using it for, you know, for health and restoration. Everybody pretty much owns their pair of pods, whatever kind. and And so people are much more active in their selection of sounds and in the way they influence their own emotions and stuff like that. And as I said, then more savvy with what is fed to them by brands and advertisers. So um, I would consider it a gross mistake to, you know, to, to overlook the, you know, the, the enormous power that sound has to influence you know, um, choices on the emotional level. If you're scoring to picture, there's likely to be dialogue. So the most important thing is in your choice of instrumentation, in your choice of palette, you want to stay away from instruments that are going to compete with dialogue. Um, because otherwise it won't work or they'll have to mix your music really far down till it's not heard anymore. So for example, you look at where the, the bulk of human speech is, which is kind of between 2000 Hertz uh, the really intelligible part is at 4,000 hertz. It's the kind of the sibilance and the consonants that help us really recognize words, and then a little bit above that. And so if you try to overlay a trumpet to someone who's talking, it's going to interfere because it's right there in that. If you want to overlay like a violin solo when someone's talking, it's going to be problematic. And so you need to make firstly good choices that leave room for the uh the dialogue to sit well with your music and a lot of the time we are driven by making our music more and more sparse in a sense the less there is that can still work the better because it gives room then for the sound effects and the dialogue so a lot of the time uh you know young composers we all kind of show off a bit and we all want to sound like john williams so we fill it up fill it up fill it up it becomes really dense and it just doesn't coexist very well and so as you get more experience, you start learning to like, like mute channels. Like I'm gonna mute this instrument, mute that instrument, mute that one, and listen to it again and say, am I missing anything? And if you're not, keep it muted. And being really bold about, uh, about being a self-editor and just saying, okay, it was a great passage that I wrote, but it's not gonna work. So let's keep it simple. Let's keep it um, just in terms of exactly what it needs to do in the most effective and, and subtle uh, and efficient way. And that is, the, that is the craft. That's where the beauty happens. Um, in film, like in a lot of areas of music, we do like to play with uh, what's called the light motif, which is you create a theme for either a situation or a person. The best example of that is The Godfather, where you have very specific themes that, uh, for Papa Godfather and then Michael Corleone. And that theme then expresses itself as Michael reaches, as he takes over the family, you know, business uh, and reaches his peak. And what was a thread of a meek theme da, 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 becomes this great, great majestic thing when he reaches that, you know, that point of power. And so what's happening there is we're using subconsciously we're attaching a melody to a character and that helps the audience find their way through 
and know what's going on. I mean, one of my rules of writing for film and television and also VR, which we'll get to, um, is be, as a composer, be kind to your audience. And what I mean by that is help them, help guide them to understand what's happening in a scene. Because it may not, the visuals and the dialogue may not, in some cases, deliver on that. And so you want to help them find their way through. And you can do that, you know, with, again, harmonic structure and emotion. But you can also do that by having a specific melody that sings throughout and comes back and comes back in different forms. And you kind of, again, subliminally, it's like Michael. Michael Corleone is rising up. And all of this happens on this incredible subliminal level. So that's, you know, another another trick and there, there are many I mean while you know maybe you can't learn to have taste or, or be a great composer you can there are lots of tricks that can get you you know um, you know to, to make very effective music whether or not you have any talent for it oh amazing thank you for sharing that well that's all for today's episode of the power of audio science and AI I'm Jasmine Moradi your host and thank you very much for listening don't forget to subscribe and support by sharing this content on your social media. This episode is supported by Stockholm Music City.